0: Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in National Security. I'm Paul, the host of the channel. Today we're going to be discussing Fountainhead of Jihad, The Haqqani Nexus, 1973-2012, jointly authored by Don Rassler and Vahid Brown and published by Oxford University Press. Found Head of Jihad is a meticulously researched and remarkably detailed exposition of the Haqqani Network's growth and ongoing importance among Pakistani militant organizations. Beginning with an expansive history of the Haqqani family's background and subsequent emergence as a critical linchpin in the Pakistani and, by extension, U.S., anti-Soviet efforts in Afghanistan, the book goes on to cover the Haqqani's present operations, including its involvement in attacks on NATO, Indian, and government forces in Afghanistan. By shedding light on a group that, while sometimes mentioned in news media, is largely unknown to non-specialists, Fountain of Jihad is a majorly scholarly contribution to the subject of South Asian extremism. The book is in large part based on fascinating primary source material, much of it gleaned from seized documents contained in the U.S. military's Harmony database, and media produced by the Hakani's and other militant actors. Those interested in Pakistani intelligence's relationship to extremism, the past and future of militancy in South Asia, and terrorist modus operandi more generally will all benefit from a close reading of Fountainhead of Jihad. After reading the book, I also believe that some familiarity with the Haqqani network is a prerequisite to understand the emergence and continued existence of Al-Qaeda and its affiliates. While insurgency rages on in Syria and Iraq, and attention on South Asian terrorism has waned somewhat, I have little doubt that the Haqqanis will continue to be a key actor in the great game between Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, long after the demise of ISIL, Jabhat al-Nusra, and other more recent additions to the Sunni militant scene. Among both scholars and practitioners, the counterterrorism community would be well advised to have a thorough understanding of the Haqqanis, and I suspect there is no better source to acquire this understanding from than Fountainhead of Jihad. Hi, Don, and welcome to New Books in National Security. It's great to have you here to talk about your book.
1: Hi, Paul. Thanks for the opportunity. Looking forward to it.
0: Absolutely. So, um, I was thinking perhaps you could start us off with a little bit about yourself and how you came to study this particular field.
1: Sure. Um, So, I I work at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point uh, and in the social sciences department there. I've been there since 2008. Um, And while at the CTC, most of my research has been focused on South and Central Asia, uh, looking at groups like the Haqqanis. I also work a lot with U.S. Special Operations Command and manage a program that works to get information declassified and then put out to the public uh, to help us understand uh, different organizations like the Haqqanis or Al-Qaeda. Prior to coming to the CTC, uh, I worked in defense consulting uh, as well as on the Capitol Hill down in D.C. for a little while. Uh, I also have a background working and living in India uh, for a, a human rights organization, so sort of an eclectic background. Um, masters in international affairs with a focus on security policy Uh, how I got into the terrorism studies field is it was a topic that I had a a long interest in um, and the opportunity to apply and eventually work at the CTC uh, arose and um, it's this entrepreneurial place Uh, and so for a a younger person like myself it was a great opportunity uh, to create and do interesting things and um, that's a little bit about how I got to uh, what I'm doing, uh, as well as the book. So uh,
0: how did you come to begin work with Vahid Brown on uh, Fountainhead of Jihad?
1: Yeah, so when I started at the CTC, uh, Vahid, you know, the center is a small place. Uh, and Vahid, uh, you know, the, C- the center was founded in 2003, and Vahid in about 2005 started to work with the CTC on a f- bunch of different projects. Uh, Vahid has a unique skill set. He's, a, he's an Arabist, um, so he has Arabic language skills as well as Farsi. Um, and so, you know, Vahid was working on different projects, and when I came to the CTC, um, I was asked to set up a South Asia research, port- research portfolio. Uh, Vahid had done a lot of work in that area. Uh, he'd also looked extensively at the history of Al Qaeda, and so, you know, in, in beginning to set up that program, uh, I reached out to Vahid. We had a variety of different conversations about uh, potential topics that we could pursue as a center, as well as collaboratively uh, that we thought would, you know, add uh, inform key debates. Uh, and also, you know, trying to identify what the strategic gaps were in the literature. Um, One of the main first projects that we actually worked on uh, was in 2007, or in 2008, uh, looking at the early evolution of the Tariqi Taliban in Pakistan and the role of Beitullah Masood. And then uh, after that, Vahid and I began to understand that, you know, through that work, uh, really the importance of the Haqqanis, Uh, And that there was a huge opportunity to provide value uh, and, you know, contribute to that problem set. Uh, And so Vahid and I just embarked on a multi-year journey to do that, uh, which was exciting uh, and involved, uh, at least for myself, travel to Afghanistan uh, and looking, seeking out, identifying different primary sources uh, and just trying to push that conversation forward as much as we could. Um, and the and I still try and, uh, work on different projects together, or at least talk about them. And it's been a pleasure to work with him.
0: That's great. So the introduction sort of spells out the meaning behind the title and the subtitle of the book really nicely. Uh, I understand that Fountainhead of Jihad is the English translation of Manwal Jihad, which is the name of the Haqqani Network's media studios, but there's a lot of other things going on in that title. Uh, so I was hoping you could unpack for us the various meanings of those key words in the title, Fountainhead, uh, Jihad, Nexus, and, and so forth.
1: Sure. Uh... So when we were thinking about the title for the book, um, the, the name Fountainhead of Jihad just jumped out to us because, you know, Fountainhead Mambal Jihad or, or Fountainhead of Jihad in English um, came from, it's not just their media, the name of their media studio through which they released digital products since about 2004 onwards and, and to this day. Um, but during the anti-Soviet Jihad, there were a lot of different, a lot of the, you know, Afghan uh, and Arabic organizations that were active you know, in in that conflict began to release a variety of different print media products. Uh, and so there was this whole community of publishing houses. And um, the Haqqani Network uh, from 1989 to 1993 actually ended up releasing um, three different magazines, uh, monthly magazines, uh, different versions in Arabic, Urdu, and Pashto. Uh, and so there's thousands of pages of primary source material, uh, and the name that uh, the Haqqani Network decided, to, you know, how they decided to brand their organization, in this or at least the magazine, um, in Arabic and in uh, Pashto, was al Jihad. Uh, and so Fountainhead, you know, and the title comes from the name of the actual magazine's that the Haqqanis produced themselves during this period. And sort of, you know, the title that they selected, I think, says a lot about um, the role that they viewed their organization playing in the region, uh, not only at that period, but also potentially into the future, which is something we try to unpack in the book. Um, In terms of uh, jihad, uh, you know, there are many different uh, interpretations of the term jihad, uh, you know, as we explain Uh, In terms of, you know, on one level it could mean strife or internal struggle, Uh, sort of on a personal level. um, Jihad can also mean violent, uh, sort of militant action. Uh, And the Haqqani Network, at least in terms of how they characterized jihad in their magazines, was, uh, you know, about combat and and violent action. And the different institutions that they set up uh, were geared to to... educate people and prepare people to think uh, about why, you know, this type of activity was needed. Um, in terms of Nexus, uh, so the head of Jihad, Haqqani Nexus, uh, we've thought long and hard about the Haqqani, you know, typically people describe the Haqqanis as the Haqqani network. Um, and, and we believe that given the organization's unique role and um, the role that the group has played over multiple decades acting as a strategic enabler or a connector between different organizations that we thought it was important to highlight and sort of shift the debate a little bit and to highlight this nexus role that the organization played and continues to play across different communities. Um, 1973 to 2013, um, we selected that date range because, um, Most of the analyses of the Haqqani network prior to, uh, with few exceptions, um, prior to the work that me and Vahid did, really focused on the starting point of analysis was the anti Soviet jihad uh, from 1979 to 1989. Um, And most sort of narratives pick up sort of in the mid 1980s, uh, particularly when Jalal and Haqqani really had a relationship with the United States. That's useful as a starting point, but we we believe through the primary sources that we looked at that that sort of masks uh, and, uh, you know, if you start there, did not provide you with uh, an as complete of an understanding of really the um, early role that the Haqqanis played in uh, Afghanistan and beyond from 1973 onwards. Uh, and so even b- before the Soviets got there, um, they had established a – uh they were people like Jalal and Hakani were quite active. Um so that's that's the reason for the title of the book. Um Thanks, Don. So I
0: also really appreciated your extensive citations and your reliance on so many primary sources. Uh, You had a lot of uh, citations from seized documents uh, that are contained in the U.S. military's Harmony database, as well as uh, media produced by the Haqqanis themselves and other militant actors. Can you tell us a little bit about your methodological approach to the project and what was the experience of uh, working with these sort of very unique sources?
1: Sure. So when we began the project, uh, one of the things that you know, Veheda and I, my, my goal was to um, cast a net as, as wide as we could uh, to try and seek out literally everything that we could get our hands on in terms of like the discovery phase of the project for the Haka- about about um, the Hakani's are produced by the Hakani's or. Groups and organizations that might have something interesting to say about the organization, and so um, in that process, uh, we, you know, given some of the work that we do, it's have, you know, we do and have done at CTC. Uh, We look at uh, capture battlefield documents, uh, material recovered in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and working with different partners uh, within the Department of Defense. We have some of that material declassified uh, and pushed out for release. And so that was an initial place that we went to to try and... Um, look for information about the Haqqanis. And uh, within the primary database that this information is stored in, which is called the Harmony Database, um, what we found was that there was a lot of information about um, the Haqqanis. And uh, this information um, was captured at safe houses associated with people like Jalad and and his key lieutenants. Uh, during the early days of the US invasion in October 2000, October and November of uh, 2001. Uh, and what was interesting about this information was that it was primarily in Pashto and Dari. Uh, and so, you know, in the early days of the invasion, uh, US focus is on Al Qaeda and Arabic language material. And so, you know, it, less attention and priority was given to studying or looking at the Pashto and Dari material, even though it was associated with people like, you know, uh, Jalal Haqqani, even letters penned by him and signed by him and his uh, commanders. Uh, you know, so there was a less um, emphasis given to that material. So what we did was went and studied that material uh, and tried to pull out as much material as we could uh, so, that was one source of information in terms of primary sources. The other main source uh, was uh, the magazines that, that I mentioned uh, that were produced by the Haqqani Network from 1989 to 1993. And what was interesting about that information, that batch of documents, is that um, this material was, you know, the Hakani's play such an important role in Afghanistan. Uh, You know, over multiple decades and, you know, particularly after 2001 and is a, you know, formidable foe for the United States and coalition partners, uh, yet this material was publicly available at a library in Kabul Uh, and actually through a twist of irony is that the material was being digitized by an endowment um, paid for. Um, through the uh, National Endowment for Humanities, so a U.S. entity, you know, one part of the government paying to digitize this, you know, uh, the library of the collection of this library in Kabul, um, and yet nobody was really studying this material, uh, even given you know, which is unfortunate because you know the strategic role that the organization was playing. We also looked at. Uh, a variety of different memoirs uh, that were produced by Al Qaeda-linked fighters, uh, foreign fighters as well as some local fighters uh, who were active in Afghanistan and Pakistan during the 1980s and 1990s and the present day. Um, so, using some of those primary sources, we tried to triangulate different perspectives. Uh, we also found some memoirs of you know foreign fighters who had embedded with the Haqqanis. Somebody like Abu Walid Al Masri, uh, who goes whose real name is Mustafa Hamid. Uh, His lengthy uh, autobiographical, you know, notes about his direct experiences fighting with the Haqqanis in the 1980s and 90s. Um, We also looked at secondary source material. Uh, And so everything that we could find in English, um, other European languages, because there's been some interesting court cases of foreign fighters who had, you know, operated with Al-Qaeda figures who had uh, Haqqani connections. Uh, we also conducted interviews with as many people as we could, um, specialists who um, had, you know, with, with a lot of field re- work in the re- in the region, um, other academic specialists, uh, people who work for the government, uh, different military communities who have experience combating or, or um, uh, you know, operating in Hakani areas. Um, so that's sort of the material that we were able to look at um, in terms of methodological challenges. Um, you know, I, I would be remiss if, if I did not mention that, um, you know, while we tried to push the ball forward in terms of uh, making the Hakani's the focus of study and enhancing, you know, the collective understanding about this group, um, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, uh, and what, other information that would have been nice to have, which would enhance further follow-on studies of the Haqqanis, uh, would be field research. Um, you know, as you can imagine, uh, field research for uh, people like Vahid and myself in Afghanistan or the tribal areas of Pakistan um, is a bit challenging. Um, you know, and it would be useful to hear sort of more current perspectives from Haqqani leaders uh, or Haqqani commanders in their own words. I think that would be valuable. Um so that's one area uh, that that deserves additional um, focus. Uh, we've also heard rumor that Jalal al-Hakani has a um, a diary, uh, and I think it would be valuable, you know, if if that's true and uh, if that diary is eventually released, sort of his autobiographical text. I think that would be tremendously informative as well.
0: So I found that cultural and physical geography came up quite a bit early in the book, and it seems to have played a very important role in the emergence of the Hakani Network and then its continued preeminence in the area. And you describe the world into which Jaluddin Haqqani was born as a maelstrom of borderland violence, an area rife with armed defense of Pashtun independence, violent resistance to state meddling with tribal and Islamic customs, and large-scale mobilizations against foreign invasions, uh, in the words of the book. Uh, How did this highland Pashtun region, its culture and its history, give rise to the Haqqanis?
1: Well, just, just as you stated, um, there's a, uh, a, a tradition that uh, in that particular region of Afghanistan and in Afghanistan more broadly, um, of resistance to foreign invasion, foreign occupation, foreign influence. Um, you know, Notable examples stand out, obviously, the British campaigns uh, in Afghanistan. Um, you also have the classic case of the Fakir of Ippi. Um, who is someone who was from the Waziristan region. uh, And, uh, you know, when the Brits were still in uh, British India, um, that when they tried to uh, gain more influence and exert more control in the Waziristan area, uh, there was an indigenous movement that was set up to rebel against that influence. Uh, And so while nowadays... Um, different actors like the Haqqani Network who uh, reside in a place like Waziristan uh, focus most of their attention westward um, to, you know, U.S. forces, Afghan government, maybe Indian influence in Afghanistan. So focusing west uh, during the, you know, um, you know, prior days, uh, you know, the, you know, Looked eastward uh, to actually fight the British and their and their proxies, and would sort of mobilize different communities um, from places like Afghanistan, southeastern Afghanistan specifically, uh, towards their cause. And so, there's for these types of issues, tribal solidarity uh, plays an important role in uh, resisting this type of influence. Um, and so there's a long-standing legacy of, you know, people like Jalal and Hakani actually sort of uh, stepping into, um, you know, a certain lineage, if you will, of individuals, you know, and also just an ethos uh, that permeates the, the region that they're a part of.
0: It seems like geography. Really plays a central role in terms of the Haqqani's strategic location vis a vis some key routes uh, into Afghanistan. Is that the is that the case?
1: It absolutely is. And so, you know, one of the you know when we thought about the Haqqanis and tried to step back from what we were learning about the group, we tried to sort of um, one of the things that we were frustrated with in terms of analysis of the organization was that. You know beyond there being actually very little work developed work that had been done on the Haqqani network's history uh, reaching back multiple decades, was that when you ask people um, about you know why are the Haqqanis so influential? why are they so resilient? You know, why, why are they the most lethal you know described as the most lethal actor in Afghanistan, the most sort of strategic actor you know described by some people um, because of some of the attacks they do in Kabul and whatnot. Um, we were just really unsatisfied with the response because the response we would normally get would be, oh, it's because the Hakani Network has areas of safe haven across the border. Um, okay, well, that, that's obviously important to have safe haven and, you know, uh, you know access, easy access maybe to a place like Kabul. Um, so what we tried to do is to think about it a bit uh, more analytically and try to sort of, see maybe potentially other reasons why the organization was so effective, not just in terms of the current campaign since 2001, but in prior conflicts as well. Uh, and there's a variety of different uh, reasons that we came up with. One of them is, a, is one that you're pointing to, which is something that we characterize as geographic centrality. Um, and so the Haqqanis, um, they have historically described themselves as primarily an Afghan organization or Afghan group. Uh, and they are, you know, their identity, you know, Jalad Haqqani, his sons, they're, they are Afghan. Um, but it sort of glosses over this point of, well, yes, they're Afghan, but the organization has made a dedicated effort since the mid-1970s to actually set up infrastructure across the border in Pakistan, in Mir Ali, in, uh, or in Miram Shah, uh, in the Waziristan region, to sort of set up as a, as a home base, a logistics home base. Um, so there's that safe haven piece. But what was interesting about it is that um, we looked at some of the transfer of material uh, during the anti-Soviet jihad uh, and sort of where hardware w- was going through. And there's an interesting account uh, provided by a former director of Pakistan's Inter Services Intelligence Directorate, uh, which he uh, discusses at length in, in a book that he produced, uh, where he talks about how. Um, I think it was up to a third of the material that was being funneled into Afghanistan to support the Mujahideen against the Soviets during that time was going through a key location, uh, you know, that was controlled by Jalal and Haqqani and specifically a base called Zawara, uh, which is in southeastern Afghanistan. Uh, and at this base, you know, uh, so you have all this material funneling through um, it's also an important location that uh, the Pakistanis actually decided to reinforce uh, when it was attacked by the Soviets and to reportedly they also sent personnel there, which would you know was also a, a first for them to do. So there, there's that issue. Uh, that's the historic component. Um, you also see it's not really being an accident that um, when people think about, all right, well, what led sort of the conditions that led to the fall of um, the uh, Afghan government to the Mujahideen in the early 1990s, um, one of the catalysts for uh, and major events that sort of preceded it was the fall of Host Garrison uh, in the province of Host in Afghanistan. Um, and Jalal, that's territory controlled by the Haqqanis. And so there's this rich history of sort of um, – Resistance, uh, but also a lot of materiel uh, and, and also this interesting place where uh, you have this collection of geographic centrality in terms of, you know, a lot of this is also involved with Jalaluddin Haqqani's views on um, his open mindedness to, to allow different types of fighters to embed with his organization and his network and doing so early on, which made them also more effective. Um, fast forward to the current day you know, you have the Haqqani sort of, you know, uh, when there are, typically when there are strategic attacks conducted in Kabul, uh, the Haqqanis are typically, you know, either described as or actually the agents who are conducting those attacks. Um, And there's geographic reasons for that. Um, They have networks, you know, from Waziristan uh, and those areas of safe haven. It's actually the quickest way to get to, Kabul is to go directly through the territory of Southeastern Afghanistan that the Haqqanis have historically had um, the most you know, ownership of in, in terms of uh, militancy. Um, you know, some of the other reasons leading their effectiveness are things like organizational centrality, which we can talk about um, as well as the just willingness to work with a lot of different actors and their ability to manage different relationships um, but organize, you know, the, the geographic area that this group is located in, and their ability to, you know, exploit that to their benefit, their survival, uh, and you know, not only play across the border to enhance their campaigns, um, but also figuring out ways that will allow them to consistently be strategic, whether that's through the fall of Coast Garrison in the early 1990s or strategic attacks in Kabul today, uh, is something that the Hakani's, you know, um, are good at. Uh, and so they are, you know, have definitely illustrated a capability to, you know, an awareness of maximizing their geographic space to their own benefit.
0: Talking about relationships with different actors, uh, what was the context of Pakistan's initial involvement uh, with the Haqqani network? And just how closely did, did Pakistan's intelligence service, the ISI, work alongside the Haqqanis during that initial anti-Soviet jihad?
1: So the Haqqani's connection to the Pakistan security establishment, and particularly its military, its Pakistan's army, and even more specifically Pakistan's Inter Services Intelligence Directorate, um, is reaches back quite far. Actually, um, you know, one of the areas that would be useful to know uh, for there to be additional sort of primary sources or evidence is the period of the late 1970s. Um, you know, there are some indications that. Um, Jalal and Hakani's relationship to that establishment reaches back to that time period. Um, during the, you know, anti-Soviet jihad and, and that conflict, um, the ties were actually quite rich, um, and I'll give you some examples. Um, so, you know, there's primary source documentation, uh, actual letters that were addressed to the Jalaluddin Haqqani, as well as his group in general, um, that t- talk about, uh, you know, rec- there's, you know, one example is there's a re- was a request that was sent saying, you know, these following, you know, three Punjabi uh, Pakistani military officers, uh, you know, would like to embed with you and fight with you in Afghanistan as part of the Mujahideen, uh, please allow them to do so. Uh, So this is a letter that's sort of coming, you know, directly from um, Pakistan's uh, military, um, just notifying or sort of requesting Haqqani to support this. Uh, Again, it's a different time and place, you know. Uh, You know, during the 1980s, you also have uh, late 1980s, the United States actually supporting uh, Jalaluddin Haqqani Is he was one of the individuals that, uh, the, the US sought out uh, to partner with, and actually, he was one of the first people that uh, was entrusted with Stinger missiles, so the game changing technology that helped to bring down um, Russian helicopters and changed the entire dynamic of the war. Um, so, you know, another example would be in terms of the ties between. Uh, Pakistan security establishment and Jalal and Haqqani, uh, you know, there's a series of fascinating uh, telex communications that were recovered in Afghanistan that go from the late 1980s up to the early 1990s. So even after the Soviets were gone, that is a, you know, in these communications you have, um, they're basically field-based communications between um, different. Outstations in Afghanistan, so different sort of Mujahideen control points, uh, one of them being Zawara. And so that one was sort of staffed by the Haqqanis. But then you have dialogue and communication um, directly with uh, Pakistan's security establishment uh, where you see things, you know, where – the Pakistanis will talk you know mention oh well congratulations on capturing coast Garrison. Congratulations on the fall you know uh, on the fall of gardez to the extent of even sort of um, trying to after these campaigns pushing providing strategic direction uh, trying to push the Haqqanis uh, or encourage them and the Mujahideen in general to go to other areas uh, so that's one element you also have indications of Funding being paid at that time. Um, and that's documented in those, uh, communications. You also have, you know, support would range to even trivial things like, uh, we need more sandals and fuel, you know, for our generator. So, uh, a lot of what the Haqqanis needed, uh, appears to have been supplied by Pakistan and it's different partners at the time, potentially the United States, you know, and other states. Um, so that's sort of the historical component. Um, and then, when you sort of enter into the 1990s, you have um, people like um, Hamid Ghul, who is another director of Pakistan's Inter Service Intelligence Directorate, um, you know, being on record stating that when he wanted his, you know, when his son went to go fight in Afghanistan, uh, he made sure that his son went to fight with Jalal and Haqqani. Now, you know, it's um, you could imagine that. At least in theory, the you know director of you know uh, this important institution of in Pakistan would you know not let his son just go fight with the, you know average Joe. Uh, is that it, it? Clearly illustrates that Jalal Khanee was somebody that was trusted, was sort of in the inner circle, at least within um, for somebody like Hamid uh and that he believed that maybe that was the best person that his son could, should go fight with. In terms of current day and the relationship between. Uh, or at least the relationship between the Pakistani security establishment and the Haqqanis since 2001. Um, This has been a bit of a, um, you know, looking into this issue is a bit like looking into a black box. Um, You know, both organizations are covert organizations, uh, and so it's hard to establish with great fidelity what exactly that relationship looks like. Uh, However, there are various pieces of information that elucidate um, the contours of that relationship, or at least what we think the contours of that relationship are. For example, you know there are, and this is you know in newspaper articles like the New York Times uh, about you know after the Indian embassy was attacked uh, with a suicide car bomb uh, in 2009, uh, in which the Indian's defense attaché was killed, uh, which was a strategic attack, sort of a signaling attack, you know, it was basically. You know, warning the Indians to sort of limit their influence, stay out of Afghanistan. Um, you know, according to these open source reports, um, you know, which are based upon, I think, cell phone intercepts, uh, the Haqqani commanders were talking with, uh, in communication with ISI agents in the paper, um, seemed to suggest that they were receiving direction from um, Pakistan's intelligence service to conduct this type of attack.
0: It seems that this was the period that the Haqqani Network's relationship with the forerunners of the individuals who would eventually become al-Qaeda began to emerge. What was this initial relationship between the Haqqanis and these individuals like? And how has the Haqqani Network's relationship with al-Qaeda persisted to this day?
1: So that's actually one of the interesting things about the Haqqani Network, is that when we started to look back into their history, uh, one of the things that we found tremendously interesting was that there was this narrative that existed uh, about al-Qaeda and its early history and the history of sort of Arab foreign fighters in Afghanistan, you know, active during the anti-Soviet jihad. The predominant narrative was that, you know, these fighters and, you know, al-Qaeda specifically, uh, after being founded in 1988, sort of were primarily partnered with uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar and Abdul Rasul Sayyaf. so sort of two other Afghan uh, Islamists uh, leaders, Mujahideen party leaders. Uh, and you know the, the foreign fighters uh, as well as uh, Al-Qaeda after it was formed, uh, certainly had relationships with these two individuals. Um, but what was interesting was that uh, the Haqqanis actually played a uh, we argue, uh, in the book, a more important role in terms of the early development of al-Qaeda than those two individuals. Uh, and we, we argue that that's the case because um, when you actually look at the uh, operate, early operational development of sort of the proto-al-Qaeda, so groups like the Maktab al uh the Afghan Services Bureau, um, as well as just the specific you know, activity of, of key personalities, Um, For example, you know, I mentioned Abu Walid al-Masri, you know, he's, you you know, has extensively documented through his own records uh, of of sort of the evolution of Arab fighting units, uh, you know, alongside Jalaluddin Haqqani, uh, and that that something that was different about uh, Jalaluddin Haqqani, vice other leaders was, vice other Afghan Mujahideen leaders, was that he seemed to be a bit more uh, inclusive uh, and open-minded about uh, allowing these different Arab foreign fighters uh, to operate, you know, in his battle space and with his units. Um, you know, because there was this view that uh, by some of the other Afghan mujahideen leaders, that oh, the Arab foreign fight, the Arab fighters, they're they're crazy. They just want to die. They don't really have good battlefield experience. Uh, so you know, we're going to take their money, uh, but we're not really interested in. You know, allowing them to fight, um, and Jalaluddin Haqqani is on record as early as 1981 uh, in, a, in a speech that he made in the UAE, where he talks about, um, you know, the, you know, encouraging um, young Muslim youth uh, from that part of the world to come to Afghanistan and to come to fight and to come to fight with him. Uh, that wasn't a message that at that time that. Uh, at least as we understand it, that other Afghan Mujahideen leaders were, were making. Uh, so he distinguished himself in that regard uh, in, in terms of allowing some of these individuals to fight. And so there's the element of, you know, the, you know providing that opportunity, which is something that has continued, uh, you know, throughout the decades. And there's multiple examples of that. Uh, but there's also the issue of who actually – so there's a qualitative dimension to this – uh, in, in, in terms of who actually went and embedded with Jalal and Haqqani, Haqqani during those early days. So you have people like Abu Walid al-Masri, who was never really formally a member of al-Qaeda, um, but did play a role in terms of helping to shape the development of the group. But you also have al-Qaeda's, you know, first and second, you know, military commanders, uh, or, or the leaders of al-Qaeda's military section, um, you know, when they were fighting in the early days in Afghanistan, they were also fighting alongside Jalaluddin Haqqani. Um, key battles that um, some of the other Arab fighters that were involved in uh, occurred in, Jala- in you know, southeastern Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, part of the reason why uh, the uh, community of terrorism scholars and academics have sort of missed this is they have sort of um, emphasized um, Arabic language material about al-Qaeda, uh, you know, which is obviously is important. Uh, But you also need to look at, you know, I think where we provide value in terms of understanding that relationship is also through um, uh, Urdu and pastoral language material, primary source. Uh, So there's that issue. And also sort of switching the lens of analysis to, you know, from Peshawar, which was the main logistics hub for all the different groups, to also look at others, you know, what could be characterized as sort of other centers of gravity for the development, not just of the Mujahideen, but also for Al-Qaeda, particularly operational areas like uh, Loya, Pactia, you know, uh, what is today, Pactia, Pactica, and Host, um, because that area is really where we saw the Arab fighters who would go on to lead Al-Qaeda in its formative years really cut their teeth. Um, So that's sort of on the operational side. In the 1990s, you also have, you know, uh, we would argue that it's really not an accident that when you look at the development of and the location of al-Qaeda's training camp infrastructure in Afghanistan, uh, and there were you know, a variety of camps in different places. Some of the most important camps uh, were in southeastern Afghanistan, in areas that you know, where Jalal and Haqqani, either he controlled you know, uh, the broader area around those camps, or uh, he had sort of the most chutzpah or, or sway in those areas. Uh, you know, we would argue, based upon the evidence that we've seen, that that's not really an accident. You also see things like um, um, Jalad and Haqqani, well, um, in, Hakani, in the Haqqani magazines, certain articles that talk about, you know, in the early 1990s, um, you know, the the need to expand jihad to other parts of the globe. And you actually see Jaladin and Haqqani being on record, talking about the need to sort of take the jihad to Sudan, uh, to Bangladesh, to other places, uh, which is not something that um, many other uh, Afghan Mujahideen leaders were uh, as engaged in. So there, there's that's sort of the, some of the historical context. Um, you know, you also have an important event in 1998 when al-Qaeda's second fatwa against the United States, uh, where al-Qaeda formally, well, formerly and broadly declared war on the U.S. Uh, was not done in South in Southern Afghanistan. In a place like Kandahar, it was done at a camp controlled by Jalal and Haqqani. Um, You know, it's likely that this didn't happen by accident. Um, you know that, and it. Uh, you know, this is a strategic location. Um, and so, when you see, you know, post 2001, you know, combat the conflict in Afghanistan sort of ramping up. Um, you know, the area where uh, we saw the highest levels of foreign fighter integration um, from the 2004 to at least 2009 time period uh, was in southeastern Afghanistan. Uh, And so, you know, again, we get back to this geographic centrality issue where Hakani's based in Waziristan, it's not just the Hakani's that are based there in places like Miram Shah, but it was also, you know, remnants of Al-Qaeda, other foreign fighting units that were based there, uh, as well as in other nearby areas. And when they wanted to fight, um, because of some of the historical experience, uh, you know, they, uh, the Hakani's had always seemed willing to allow these individuals to embed with them. There are multiple cases of this, cases of this in terms of actual individuals, that we can tie to some of this activity. Uh, a good case is a guy named Abu Nasir al Qatani, who was an Al-Qaeda, Saudi al Qaeda member, who was actually uh, arrested uh, in 2005, it was held by US forces, escaped from custody, went back to Waziristan, uh, continued with his fight, in recruiting people, training people, to include foreign fighters who wanted to conduct attacks against uh, uh, European countries. And then going, you know, was eventually arrested again, conducting video surveillance of uh, a Ford operating base called FOB Salerno uh, in hosts in southeastern Afghanistan. <laughs> um, so it's we see there being operational ties, uh, and some people, you know, the debate really is, you know, so there's clear tactical and operational collaboration, uh, and really where uh, there's a disagreement in the sort of analytical community. Is about to what extent the Haqqanis have had uh, a strategic relationship with Al Qaeda. Um, the case that we make in the book uh, is that by you know some of the ideas that were articulated, you know, by Jalal and Haqqani and others, uh, not only does there appear to be some sort of um, uh, synergy in, in that space, uh, but that there was you know that some of those words were also being backed up by deeds in uh, actions and shared resources. Um, you know, a good example would be after the 1998 um, uh, uh, Al Qaeda's attacks against the uh, East African, uh, the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, the U.S. In retaliation conducted a cruise missile strike, um, and they targeted a. Uh, Al-Qaeda's training bases, uh, and the Haqqanis are on record talking about that some of their fighters actually died in those cruise missile strikes. Um, So you sort of see that collaboration even during that period. You describe the
0: Haqqanis as having enormous value and importance to the Pakistani state, in terms of their ability to kinetically strike Pakistan's opponents, uh, like you mentioned the attack on the Indian Embassy, um, and to broker cooperation among the various militant organizations um, in northwest Pakistan. But this arrangement seems to come with some very serious risks for Pakistan, which is waging its own war on al-Qaeda and the TTP, and has to at the same time manage its alliance with the United States. Can you tell us a little bit more about this balancing act uh, that Pakistan
1: has to perform
0: in its relations with the Haqqanis?
1: Sure. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it is a challenging balancing act for Pakistan. Uh, So, um, you know, when we typically think about the Pakis, you know, Pakistan's relationship with the Haqqani. You typically think about it with respect to Afghanistan, uh, and sort of the Haqqani's being a historical and current tool for you know Pakistan and security agencies to project influence, power uh, in Afghanistan, and to signal to various actors like the Indians about their activity. That's important. Um, but another dimension to this, which sort of is usually less treated, less uh, in less detail. It is the sort of relationship between the Haqqanis and Pakistan with respect to Pakistan, uh, and particularly with respect to the tribal areas. And so um, the Pakistani security establishment um, you know, lacks influence uh, and in a place like Waziristan. Uh, and in, in order to mediate With different entities to try and manage militant activity, particularly anti-state activity, so conducted by entities like the Turkey Taliban Pakistan, the TTP, uh, you know, waging a a jihad, a war against the state of Pakistan because of, you know, uh, the perception of uh, Pakistan's security relationship with the United States. Uh, as well as pakistan 's meddling in the Waziristan region and actual conflict that 's conducted against these different organizations uh, to sort of help broker and you know for the state to manage some of that activity you see and there 's numerous documented examples of the Haka- of Pakistan actually working sort of in a you know by with and through um, the Haqanis, you know, with the, with key Haqqani figures sort of serving as mediators to um, mediate disputes, uh, to try and get hostages released. Um, And so, you know, you you have this dynamic where Pakistan's in a difficult place because um, it has, you know, this historical relationship with Jalal and Haqqani, uh, with the Haqqani Network. The Haqqani Network has proven itself to be a, uh, at least – at the surface level, a reliable and sort of trusted partner because of its ability to conduct strategic attacks like the Indian embassy attack or other sort of engagements. Um, so it's useful in that regard, also useful, you know, on the Pakistan side of the border, as I mentioned. Um, yet uh, Pakistan faces a significant militancy problem in terms of its anti-state anti-state actors. Uh, and so how, why this is difficult for Pakistan is because Groups like the TTP are elements of the TTP, uh, which is a uh, basically an alliance of different sub-tribally organized uh, units, which are usually geographically organized as well. Um, you know, elements of the TTP will plug in, fight, gain combat experience in Afghanistan, working with the Haqqanis. And so the Haqqanis are also at an awkward spot where they're sort of live in the same area as the TTP. and need to sort of be on good grounds with some of the TTP actors and, uh, the state of play in that region uh, and form alliances to do that, yet for Pakistan to exert influence you know, in Afghanistan in, in the Waziristan region, it also needs to rely on the Haqqanis, and the unfortunate thing, was, you know, what makes this even more challenging for Pakistan is that it actually it appears as though Pakistan does not have a, like, many other good options uh, to play the type of role that the Haqqanis play in Afghanistan or in Pakistan, uh, and so what Pakistan has been trying to do is to walk this fine line between, you know, pursuing a security policy that sort of differentiates or at least historically tries to differentiate between good and bad sort of Taliban or good and bad jihadi. Um, but, the, 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 you know, the challenging part of that is that these organizations, you know, they collaborate on one side of the border, yet, you know, in theory, they don't collaborate on the other side of the border um, but that's not always not entirely the case. Uh, so how do you manage the spillover? Um, you know, in Pakistan does not, despite some of the things that it says, it doesn't want to go in and you know fully take, um, go after the Haqqanis, uh because I think they, there's a recognition from their side that doing so uh, would stir stir up an even bigger hornet's nest an even bigger problem. Um, than they can handle. So what they've been trying to do is to chip away at, this pro- at their sort of anti-state militancy problem uh, by breaking groups apart and using the hakanis as a, a method or, in some cases, tool to, um, to do that, uh, or at least to um, communicate with other actors in that region. You know, things that complicate this are and complicate the relationship are events like the assassination of Nasirid and Haqqani. So one of Jalaluddin Haqqani's sons uh, outside of Islamabad uh, in broad daylight. You know, still not really known who conducted that attack. Um, you know, people make the case that the relationship between Pakistan and Haqqani's is changing. Uh, that that might be the case, uh, although it seems as though uh, you know. You know, I guess the, what what I would argue is that there's not enough sort of definitive evidence to actually indicate that that's actually what's going on.
0: Now, much like other major jihadist organizations, the Hezbollahs and Hamases of the world, uh, Haqqanis maintain an extensive network of infrastructure. They have religious institutions, they run military camps, propaganda outlets how have these institutions benefited the Haqqanis and influenced their relationship with more global actors such as Al-Qaeda?
1: The Haqqanis, given that they um, have been quite active uh, in the region for a long period of time, as you said, have uh, you know, well-developed infrastructure, uh, and you know, that includes um, you know, centers for learning madrasas, religious institutions, uh, so different schools that the organization has set up, uh, you know, to include their you know seminal institution that uh, they used to run called Mamba Alum in North Waziristan, and so the, the benefit of these different institutions is that um, you know by providing an outlet for education for local youth, um, and typically education that is you know providing sort of room and board and, and, and food. Um, you know, as well as education, you know, provides an opportunity for youth to, you know, for the Haqqanis to educate uh, people into their particular worldview and their own interpretation of uh, Islam uh, and how they believe, uh, um, you know, should view current events uh, as well as how to respond to those events. Uh, And so I think that that's one benefit. Uh, you you know, you also have uh, other benefits, too, in terms of this infrastructure where the Haqqanis uh, have given, you know, um, linkages to places like Darulum Haqqania, which is a uh, key, uh, a seminal uh, madrasa in northwest Pakistan, out close to Peshawar, where a lot of Haqqani actually studied and taught for a period. So linkages with different... Um, religious parties in the country. Uh, and sometimes the magazines talked about, um, you know, some of these relationships, uh, and how sort of speculated how that they could be financial relationships as well. Uh, and so you also have, you know, through this network, you know, when people talk about Hakani network financing, they typically talk about things like Gulf donors, uh, and, and things like that. And I can talk about that in a second. Um, but there's also this local network through which they can raise funds to sort of to contribute to the fight, to contribute to the jihad. Uh, and so that, uh, at least as we understand it, is a well-established network. Uh, you also have, you know, in places like the Gulf, um, the Haqqanis having uh, relationships with what appear to be uh, at least historical relationships with some powerful people. Again, different time, different conflict. Um, but it's unclear to what extent some of those relationships might have carried over and continued. Uh, and it also appears, and it's, it's hard to sort of pin these things down with, you know, uh, precise information, um, but there appears, it appears that the Hakani's, you know, people, you know, uh, talk about the Hakani's being involved in, in certain industries, um, whether that's things like real estate, uh, in other parts of the globe, uh, or um, through transport uh, in Pakistan, or maybe even internationally, uh, as well as you know connections with maybe some transport things across the border in Afghanistan, um, you know. And so it's it's. I think that the important takeaway with this is that the Haqqanis have been in business uh, for a long time. You know, one of the main ways that Jalal and Haqqani – Uh, just to sort of illustrate his entrepreneurialism is that after the, you know, anti-Soviet jihad, when the Russians left, there were, it was a lot of, in a place like host at the airstrip in, in, in host, there's a lot of sort of down planes and helicopters. And what he did was uh, took a lot of that material and sold it as scrap metal uh, and made money that way. Uh, And so, you know, this is an organization that uh, has been around for over 30 years uh, and has relationships that, you know, likely reach back that far with certain uh, industries and, and also certain parts of the globe. Uh, and, you know, one of the most interesting documents that we read was um, actually on the cover of the Haqqani Network's magazines. They talk about, uh, you know, during the anti-Soviet jihad, if you want to uh, donate funds here are the five offices that we have in the Middle East, four of them in the UAE, or no, three of them in the UAE, and two of them in Saudi Arabia with phone numbers and in some cases addresses of these places. Uh, And, you know, the individual who was the first person to sort of set up that network, you know, he writes several articles in the magazines, uh, and he talks about sort of there being a team of people that were sent over to sort of facilitate these types of donations and financial relationships. Now, you can imagine that... um, you know the Haqqanis were doing that in the 1980s. Um, you know, you know, and I, and I can't say this with absolute certainty, but it's likely, uh, or it, you know, that the Haqqanis probably have maintained some of that infrastructure, uh, or at least have people who have seasoned experience over there uh, and all, you know, ties and relationships. And the Haqqanis uh, have leveraged that to um, to do what they do, remain effective. Uh, you know, I think one of the interesting things is the Hakani's and their resilience. And so you have this issue where, you know, the U.S. military coalition partners, Afghan, you know, military security forces are, you know, the Hakani's have been a, a target of this organization, um, of all these different actors, uh, and yet they continue to sort of be resilient and rebound. Uh, part of that is manpower, so sort of motivating people to continue to fight. Uh, maybe that's, you know, could be part of Uh, their efforts in sort of the educational sphere, Um, you know, and then you also have the resources to be able to keep things going. And I'm not saying that this requires a tremendous amount of resources, but yet um, the organization has been able to um, continue operations and do so in a, uh, in a way that has been somewhat strategic in certain areas uh, and difficult for the Afghan government and the U.S. You know, coalition forces to manage uh, since 2001. So uh, I think their infrastructure is something that needs to be taken seriously. And my personal opinion is that um, I think more could be done to understand that infrastructure uh, and also to sort of take it seriously in the sense that, um, you know, that it should be looked at over a long-term horizon um, because I think that really to understand it today is it really you know needs to be informed by a solid understanding of what that infrastructure actually looked like in f- further detail than we currently have in the past.
0: Interesting. Despite the U.S.'s extensive drone campaign in really Hakani heartland, uh, the network's focus seems to have remained solidly on regional targets. Do you think Looking forward, that there's any possibility of the Haqqani network becoming involved directly in attacks beyond South Asia, or do you think that this is really going to remain contained by its uh, relationship with Pakistani intelligence?
1: I think the latter. I think if if the current state of play holds in terms of what that relationship looks like between the Haqqanis and the uh, state of Pakistan, uh, I think that the dynamics of that relationship will. Um, continue uh, will help to ensure that that relationship help to ensure that the Hakanis uh, stay more regionally oriented. Um, it also appears that that could also be something that they are actually, um, that they understand that that's their comparative advantage is actually acting uh, regionally and locally. So, um, so I, you know, that would be my read on that issue. Um, However, I think, you know, another interesting question is given, you know, 13 years of war, you mentioned the drone strikes, uh, and the loss of, you know, an important variable here too is the loss of senior Haqqani family members and leaders, the Sir Haqqani, Bajrajan Haqqani, um, you know, recently detained in Afghanistan, Anas Haqqani, um, uh, Haji Malik Khan in Afghanistan, uh, a whole bunch of different individuals. Uh, and so, you know, could that push the group to be sort of more internationally oriented? You know, I don't think there's enough information to sort of, um, come out with absolute certainty on that issue. Um, I think that, um, it's unlikely that the Haqqanis, even if they were to have that viewpoint, uh, is that you know? Give, I don't see them acting in a way where they would be out front of you know internationally international attack or plot uh, unless dynamics changed in the region and sort of the status quo changed. Um, I mean, so so that would be how I would think about that issue. Um, is that you know? In the Haqqanis, I think the important thing here is that uh, they've also seemed to have continued to play a role. Uh, as an enabler for organizations like Al Qaeda and others, uh, other transnationally motivated jihadist groups who want to operate outside of the region. Um, and so, it, you know, I think that typically, when you know, I think when people look at this issue, they think, "All right, well, is it Al Qaeda with the Haqqanis go global?" Um, I think th- that's one way to look at it, and that's important. But I also think it's important to sort of think about these, this issue and this question in terms of, like, a system where, you know, there's a division of labor where you have um, entities like al-Qaeda who benefit from the relationship with the Haqqanis in a local regional context uh, and have historically, uh, and while the Hakani's might not be the, the agent conducting an attack, um, you know, they, from, you know, maybe another helpful way to think about this is from a material support perspective, uh, is that sort of looking at it through the lens of, all right, well, the Haqqanis, through various periods of time, have provided material support to al-Qaeda, who has directly been implicated you know, and involved in those types of international attacks. Um, so I, you know, I think division of labor is important to think about with respect to this issue. Um, you know, but it's, it's, it's hard to know where this is going to go. Uh, and you know, uh, and I, I think it's also important to recognize that um, things can change. Uh, and who knows? I mean, after 13 years of war and after losing a lot of family members, the Haqqanis might say, hey, look, this relationship isn't worth it anymore with Al-Qaeda uh, or with transnational jihadis. We just want to focus on our local regional fight. Uh, let them do their thing. Maybe we'll still maintain relationships. Uh, and so, you know, and, and that could even be what the relationship looks like today. Uh, it's just hard to accurate, you know, to sort of um, – really make a judgment on that um, because of the lack of information, at least that exists in the open source to uh, inform that question.
0: Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, Don. Uh, I'm wondering if you might let us know what's next for you, any upcoming projects?
1: Sure. Um, well, I have my, my hands in a, in a variety of different projects uh, at the CTC. Um, um, editing some work looking at uh, evolution of Al-Qaeda and Iraq's financing, um, also helping out with a piece that looks at the evolution of Central Asian jihadist groups uh, active in Afghanistan and Pakistan since uh, 9-11. Um, and I've also sort of um, uh, emboldened by uh, our Haqani research, or at least inspired by it, uh, I've also been involved in an effort to acquire uh, primary source material produced by other um, Pakistan and Afghanistan based militant groups, uh, historical and current material. Uh, And so I've been, you know, what we're trying to do is to set up, um, you know, a collection of material, which I think would complement other efforts that are going on uh, from other uh, scholars who are are working on similar projects. Um, Personally, uh, in terms of other research, uh, I'm, interested in looking at the evolution of transnational terrorism from Pakistan-based groups uh, and to look at it historically. Uh, and I hope to do that within the next uh, year or two.
0: Interesting indeed. Well, thank you very much, Don, for joining us on New Books in National Security.
1: Thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure.